would teach us. Our scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 18. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men." And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the, sac- upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So far, the word of God. As you can observe, we're continuing in our series in Philippians. The last time we were in Philippians, we worked through verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2. And so today we will be looking at verses 12 and 13. And let's read those verses again. There are only two verses. And you'll be helped anyways by having your Bibles open before you. Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your, your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, The theme for the sermon last time we were in Philippians was self-denial and 
self-denial and service in the footsteps of Christ. That was the message coming from verses 1 through 11. Paul exhorted the Philippians in verses 3 and 4. We looked at this in detail. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then, so that was his exhortation. And then to drive that home, he had the Philippians look at the ultimate example of Christ doing exactly that. If you want to know what self-denial and service look like, look at Christ. He shows you. So we read those verses again just now. And Paul emphasizes that God exalted Christ as the result of that self-denial and service. Because Christ humbled himself, even though he was in the nature of God, he did not try to take the authority that God the Father has, but instead humbled himself under that authority, taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death. And because he followed the path of obedience all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross, God highly exalted him. And that's then where today's text begins. Let's read just the the last couple of verses again before verse 12. So verses 9 through 11, he says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the setting for this text. He's walked us through the example of Christ, the sacrifice, the service of Christ, and the the pinnacle of exaltation where, where God exalted Christ because of that obedience. So he says, this is what Christ has done, and this is how God exalted him. And you can almost feel it. There's a there's a therefore coming very soon. What's the application now? For us, you can imagine there might have been this this moment of silence after Paul had finished writing all these words about how God exalted Christ in such glorious terms, and then Paul's stenographer, because Paul didn't didn't literally write the letters, he, he spoke them because he had poor vision. So Paul's speaking, his stenographer is writing, and you can almost imagine after writing those verses, Paul's stenographer would have looked up at Paul and wondered. What is Paul going to say after verses like that, after verses 9 through 11? What's the application now for us? What's the message for this Philippian church? Well, that's in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in light of my coming, but also much more while I'm absent, go work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who works in you, both to work, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's the, the therefore, the conclusion, the application of this is what Christ has done, therefore go and do this. Go, and he says, work out your own salvation. Now understandably, it's a famously difficult verse. What in the world does Paul mean? Go and work out your own salvation. The Greek word that's translated work out doesn't usually mean work out. And I don't think it's the best translation either. It usually means something more like produce or achieve or bring something to completion. 
So is that then what Paul is telling us? Go and, and achieve your own salvation. In what sense do we do that? In what sense do we achieve or accomplish or finish our own salvation? Now, if Paul is saying, essentially, go now and save yourselves, as Christ did, or go now and complete your salvation as if what Christ did made you, let's say, 80% saved, and now you've got that remaining 20%, you need to go and, and finish that, that would go completely against everything that Paul has written in this letter and in every other letter. In fact, in the very next chapter in Philippians 3, Paul writes about how he gave up all of his former claims to accomplishing his own salvation. And he puts all of his hope in receiving Christ's righteousness instead of his own. So Paul cannot possibly be saying, go now and finish what Christ started, or go now and achieve your own salvation. That would make no sense at all. Paul has already laid the foundation for our salvation, the gospel, and he can't possibly in this text be now ripping out that foundation and telling you go lay a different one, your own righteousness. No, he knows Christ is our righteousness. But then what is Paul saying? Well, I think to be able to answer that question, you have to first understand what the, the therefore, at the beginning of verse 12, what it's there for. Maybe you've heard this before as kids. Whenever you see a therefore, you ought to ask, what's it there for? Um, and in, in other words, what's it pointing back to? What is this therefore pointing back to? Well, the most obvious answer is what Paul has just finished saying about Christ, how he humbled himself in obedience to the Father, and afterwards God exalted him. And we can see that that's exactly what Paul is thinking about. These two verses are tied together because this theme of obedience is there in both verses. Christ, in verse 8, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now in verse 12 he says, Therefore, beloved, just as you have always obeyed, go and work out your salvation. So the point seems to be this. The path to glory for Christ was the path of obedience. Christ never took any shortcuts to glory. He obeyed and he waited for the Father to glorify him and exalt him. And therefore, the message for the Philippians and for us is the same. When Paul says, go and work out your salvation, he means if that's the path that Christ took, following the path of obedience, go and follow Christ in that same path of obedience right to the very end, and God will certainly exalt you as well. Now I have to emphasize again, Paul is not talking then about earning your salvation. We need to understand that Christ has earned our salvation, not 80%, not 90%, 100% of our salvation. We do nothing to earn our status of righteous and saved before God. And we're going to see that Paul emphasizes that even more in chapter 3. And yet there is another sense in which your salvation and my salvation is not yet complete. Let me give an analogy. Think of a person who, who makes it out of a sinking ship somewhere in the middle of the ocean 
And they're lost. They're doomed. They have nothing to hold on to. They have absolutely no hope at all. And, and they're, they're certainly going to die either of starvation or sharks or something. In their position, they are as good as dead. And so were we in our sins. Paul says this in Ephesians. You were once dead in your sins and trespasses. Now imagine the, the Coast Guard dis- discovers where, where this person is and they, they come out with a helicopter to, to rescue them and they throw down a lifeline with, with one of those uh, lifesaver, those rafts, and the person in the water grabs onto it. Now you can certainly say from the moment they've grabbed that life ring, they are saved. Their salvation is complete. They've been rescued before they had no chance of survival. And now everything that they need to be saved is right there and they're already holding on to it. And yet, they do still need to hold on. There's a difference between salvation and perseverance. And that's the sort of thing then that Paul is writing about here. And you can distinguish between these two, salvation and perseverance, but even this analogy shows you can't ultimately separate them. Perseverance is a step in the path of salvation. And that's why Paul then can give a command like this. He's not talking about earning your salvation. He's not talking about accomplishing something that Christ didn't accomplish for you. You don't earn or accomplish any of it. And if it were up to you and your good works, you would certainly be lost. So Paul's not writing about earning, but about persevering to the end. Taking Christ's work of salvation to the end of your life. Unless we persevere, unless we take that salvation all the way to the finish line, we will still be lost. Now, I I, I grant this is a bold command for Paul to give. And and some of you might even take issue with my analogy. I, I almost hope you do. And you would say, well, if that's a fair analogy, then it's not just us holding on to the life raft. It's Christ holding on to us. That's certainly true. It isn't a perfect analogy. Christ does hold on to us. And Paul is going to get there in just a moment. And yet, there is still a command for you and for me, for each of us, to persevere. The command isn't, go and let Christ work out your salvation. It is, go and work out you, your salvation, by persevering to the end. So it leaves us with the question, is it fair? Is it even theologically correct for Paul to give a command like this. And understand, this is a really practical question. If we grant that our salvation does depend on our perseverance, which certainly is what Paul seems to be implying here, then, then it leaves us with the question, well, how much, of our, how much of that perseverance is my work and how much of it is Christ's work? How much am I holding on to the life ring? How much is Christ? holding on to me? It's a very practical question. Well, usually people tend to divide into two different camps, and, and I'm borrowing this distinction from John MacArthur. So last week it was John Piper, now it's John MacArthur, but work with me. Uh, this is a helpful analogy. There, there's two camps on this question. The one camp says, you just need to let go and let God. You need to let go and let God. These people, you can call them the, the quietists. 
They say you need to surrender and let God do his work in your life. You need to, you need to have a Jesus take the wheel sort of attitude. The problem with that camp is that it doesn't leave any place for my effort in waging war against sin in my own life, in persevering in the struggle in my own life. If it's really just a matter of needing to let God take over and just let go, is there still a command for me to engage in that war myself? You look at a command like this from Paul, it certainly seems like there's a place for my will, my effort, my determination, my own discipline, and my own effort in waging war against sin. Well, the other camp says perseverance is entirely up to you. And you can call this camp the, the pietists. So there's the quietists and, and the pietists. And the pietists say, you need to fight for your salvation. It depends on you. You need to engage your will. You need to wage that war if you're going to persevere. And the problem with that camp, if it's overemphasized, is where is the work of God? Where is God's role? In your salvation. If you're the only one holding on to that life ring, where is Christ holding on to you? And where's the assurance for, for, for weak sinners who are fighting that battle and who are discovering that their will is not strong enough to win that, that war, that they're losing that battle against their sin? If my perseverance is up to me, I already know I'm doomed. I'm not going to make it. Well, we can't diminish what Paul says here on either front. Paul isn't saying, go and, as, as this translation almost seems to imply, Paul is not saying just go and, and live out your salvation. He is saying, go and achieve it. Go and finish it. Go and bring your salvation to completion would be how I would translate this, this command. It's a very strong word that Paul is using, and we can't diminish it. I don't think the translation uh, work out fully captures the strength uh, of this word. Working out means sort of living, living off of something or living out of the consequences of something. Um, but, but salvation is the object here. He's saying go and produce that. Go and accomplish that salvation. And we already know he doesn't mean that in the sense of earning it, but in the sense of persevering with it, accomplishing it in the sense of persevering to the end. And so it is a very practical question then. Where do we stand between the quietists and the pietists in the, in the effort of accomplishing our salvation? How much of my perseverance depends on, on the work of God and how much of it depends on my own effort? Well, having introduced the problem, let me now finish the verse. Let's start over in verse 12. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not only my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. How much then of your perseverance depends on your will and effort? All of it depends on that. How much of your dependence work depends on God's work? All of it depends also on that. 
That, brothers and sisters, is the awesome, humbling experience of the Christian life. It's witnessing God at work in your life through your own will and effort and behind that will and effort. Now, notice Paul is, is just building on what he's already said before to the Philippians. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I'm sure of this concerning you Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Notice the way he phrases that. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So salvation and perseverance is entirely the work of God from beginning to end. He calls us to the gospel. He enlightens our mind to understand the gospel. He opens our hearts to believe the gospel. And then he changes us us from within and sustains our faith within right to the very end. Our salvation is the work of God. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And yet, he doesn't do so without us as if we're simply objects upon which he acts. When God acts within you, you also act with God. We persevere. We carry our faith to the very end. We carry out the fight against sin. But when we do, we recognize it's God who's doing this within us. That's the mystery and and the truly humbling reality of the Christian life. And you can see that's where the, the analogy of this rescue at sea sort of starts to break down because the reality is it's both. Christ holds on to us and we hold on to Christ and it's by Christ's strength that we hold on to Christ. He works through our working. Now, you might also wonder, why does Paul add the phrase then, with fear and trembling? Work out your salvation with fear and and trembling. Is this a threat? Is this a warning to you? Is this a reminder of the possibility of failure? Some people take that expression this way. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because the consequences of failure are so dire. But you you notice that isn't the reason that Paul gives. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And why fear and trembling? Because it's God himself, the almighty God, who's at work within you, both to will and to work. So it isn't fear of failure that makes me tremble. It's the knowledge that the Almighty God, the same God who sends hurricanes and crushes mountains, and before whom the angels sing, Holy, 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 that God lives and works within me. If that's not a reason for fear and trembling, I don't know what is. This phrase, in fact, this phrase, fear and trembling, is a common phrase that's taken out of the Old Testament. And it always refers, always, in every instance, to someone's attitude before God. Psalm 2, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And it's a phrase that Paul himself often uses. Let me give just a few examples. Ephesians 6, verse 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. 
Or 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, Paul, Paul speaks of his own disposition before the Corinthians as an apostle sent from God, and he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Or 2 Corinthians 7, Paul speaks to the Corinthians of, of how, they, how they received, he praises them for how they received Titus as someone sent from God. And he says, Titus' affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of all of you as you received him with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling is the sinner's response to knowing that they're in the presence of God or working with someone sent from God. The phrase refers to our, our human weakness, our, our sense of smallness, the, the awe and the fear that we sinners have in the presence of the Almighty God. God who is righteous, God who is three times holy, God who is almighty and creator and sustainer and judge. Any human who knows all of what that really means reacts with fear and trembling. And all the more so then if that God is at work within you. So when Paul uses the phrase here, he doesn't mean it as a warning about the possibility of failure, fear and tremble, uh, lest you should fail, but fear and tremble because the Almighty God works within you. He means it not as a warning, but as an encouragement. Be, be afraid in a joyful sense, knowing that none other than Almighty God is at work within you. Now, in the context, all of this is, again, a call to following Christ, a call to obedience. He is our, our king, and we follow him in the path then that he took. So the call is to follow Christ, waging war against sin as Christ himself did. Of course, he wasn't waging war against his own sin, but against sin in the human race. You are called to wage war, first of all, against the sin that exists within you. That's what it means for you to follow Christ in the path of obedience. Fight the same sin that, that Christ fought, but you fight it within yourself. And do that work, wage that war with fear and trembling, because it's in fact God who is waging that war in your own heart. Your heart is the battleground on which God Almighty wages war against sin. The very God who created the universe, the God who's sovereign over everything, including over your heart, the God who is righteous, the God who is incomparably holy, He is at work within each of us, producing that salvation, accomplishing that salvation. And so the call then is for you, if God is at work in you, let not you fall short of picking up your sword in that fight. If God is standing by your side, don't stand with an empty hand, but pick up the sword and fight. The call is Fight for what God is fighting for. Engage your own will in that war against sin. Participate in that work that will ultimately lead to your salvation because it is the very work of God. So what better, what better encouragement can any sinner have than to know that the one who's fighting the war against their sin is none other than God himself? And what better reason for you and me to throw ourselves into that fight 
knowing that behind our effort, behind our self-discipline, behind our confessions of sin and our times of making ourselves accountable over and over again, behind all that day-to-day fight against sin, God is working through those efforts, as small as they might seem to us. Well, let me make this real for a moment and apply it then to, to, to the daily fight against my sin and your daily fight against your sin. Let's take, for example, the fight against pride, since that's what Paul is specifically uh, working with in, in these chapters, the fight against pride and self-promotion and, and self-conceit. The, the one camp, the, the quietest, would say, I should just let go and let God change that, that self-exalting nature within me. And certainly God does do so. It's, it's one of the joys that we have as Christians of witnessing the work of God, uh, taking away that desire for me to promote myself and, and watching that being replaced with a desire to see and magnify God's glory. We get the, the, the pleasure and the privilege of witnessing that in our own lives as Christians. But another, another part of being changed in this area also involves your effort, your work, your deliberate effort in, in dealing with the sin of pride and self Promotion, which involves confessing that sin to your wife or to your parents or to those whom God has placed in your life. It's confessing that sin to God. It's making that deliberate choice day after day. I do not live for my own glory. I live for the glory of God. It's, it's learning to recognize when I'm not considering others as better than myself, as Paul has commanded me to do so. It's learning to, to acknowledge that. It's that conscious, intentional, deliberate effort in putting pride to death day after day. And it's, it's that, that very much then involves my will, my effort. And yet at the same time, I recognize in a profound way, it is the work of God making me into someone that I was not before. Someone who forsakes his own glory because he sees and loves and wants to magnify the glory of God instead. That's the mystery of the Christian life. Those two things coming in side by side. Us working for our sanctification, fighting for our perseverance, and recognizing in that 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 is the work of God. The same is true in the fight against all of our other sins. Part of our Part of our sanctification is is the changing and maturing of our desires. Take, for example, also the the seventh commandment, the desire of lust, of, of sexual lust. It's watching that desire disappear. It's watching that desire replace being replaced with something far more glorious, far more beautiful, marriage and sexuality as God intended that, and seeing that desire planted within us and growing and maturing. That's, that's the joy of watching God do his work. And yet, at the same time, there is everyday battle involved there. It's fighting, it's confession, it's accountability, it's setting up roadblocks, it's using it's using technology to help us in, in our accountability. It's making deliberate, conscious efforts to change and recognizing in that change that God is at work changing us. 
He is doing that work. He is behind our will and our work. It's true of every area in the fight for sanctification, in the fight against unrighteous anger and wrath and losing my temper. I have to put in the effort of searching out why is my spirit in in such unrest? What lies behind my anger? And I need to learn to confess it. I need to learn to be accountable for it. I need to spend the time in, in prayer and in God's word fighting to win that battle against ungodly, unrighteous anger. And yet I know that those efforts, that work, is the work of God, destroying that sin, that idol within me, and walking me down that path of obedience. It's true in the fight against covetousness and and jealousy for the blessings that God has given to others. I have to put in my work of recognizing that I'm envious when I am envious. I need to recognize covetousness where it exists. I need to come to grips with the, the distrust in God that lies behind my, my jealousy and covetousness. I need to learn to confess that to God. I need to spend time in God's word and, and under the preaching to learn what it is to be grateful for, for the, the lot that God has given me and content. But as I learn those things and fight for those things, I recognize it's God doing that fight within me. God is at work changing me. There's obviously a, a mystery here of where, how, how does my responsibility and my effort come together with the work of, of the Spirit of God. And it's a mystery we can't possibly fully wrap our minds around. I find the canons of Dort do a, do a beautiful job of describing that mystery as best as it can be described. Take uh, chapter 3 slash 4 of, of the canons of Dort. This is article 12. It says, all those in whose hearts God works in this amazing way, they are certainly, unfailingly, and effectually regenerated, and they do actually believe. So when God chooses to work on someone, they will be changed. And, and then the will, it says, is so renewed that it is not only acted upon and moved by God, but Having been acted upon, the will itself also then acts. So we are not just stones. We're not just statues that God is shaping into his image. As he shapes us, we also act. That's the work of the Holy Spirit within you and me. He acts upon my heart so that my desires change. He acts upon my mind so that my mind begins to understand the truth of the gospel and its significance for my life. And he acts even upon my will so that what I want and what I push myself to do is changed such that when God acts, I myself also act. So the quietists are wrong if what they mean is that we just need to sit and wait for God to work a miracle in our lives. And the pietists are wrong if they think that it's entirely up to us. Now the truth is, scripturally, we are called to carry out that miracle in our own lives. And as we do, we're to be encouraged and spurred on with fear and trembling by the knowledge that it's God who does that work within us. It's the Holy Spirit that Christ has given us after he ascended that is at work changing us. 
So again, Paul urges the Philippians, go, work out, accomplish, persevere in your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If God has chosen for no other reason than his own sovereign good pleasure to choose you and to be at work in you, do not stand in the way of that work, but pick up that work yourself and carry it forward. Keep in step with the Spirit, as Paul says elsewhere, for it's God who's working in you. It's the humbling, awe-inspiring reality that God, the Holy Spirit, works in frail, broken sinners like you and me. This is the Christian life, and praise God for it. Amen.